Live from WNUR News, I'm Brendan Prizman. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, Day of the Dead celebrations, an empty movie theater, communal bookshelves, and the sports report. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. As the horrors of Halloween have died down, Day of the Dead emerges soon after. Alex Huerta and Mariah Petway have the story. As Halloween comes to an end, the images of death and skulls transform from symbols of horror into adornments for a celebratory holiday. Day of the Dead. Dia de los Muertos, as it's known in its country of origin, Mexico, celebrates the remembrance of those who've passed from our world. Although it is called the Day of the Dead, it's a celebration of life, an opportunity uh, in the sort of uh, Mexican and Latin American iconography for the living to reestablish connection with the ones who have departed this life. You just heard from Professor Hector Carrillo, a Northwestern Sociology and Gender Studies professor with affiliations to Latina and Latino studies. During our interview, he constructed a portrait of the celebration. Let me start by saying that it's a very syncretic uh, celebration that brings together uh, beliefs and uh, and ways of thinking about life and death that are indigenous to to uh, the the Mexican indigenous cultures, uh, and that 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 became combined and linked to uh, Spanish Catholic traditions. During my discussion with Carrillo, there seemed to be a reoccurring element of bridges and links. The holiday appears to manifest itself through a series of spiritual and or physical bonds. During the colonial period, you know, in in, uh, in the last, you know, of, of 400 years, the sort of ways of thinking uh, about life and death of the indigenous cultures became, you know, uh, uh, linked to celebrations that, uh, that the Spanish uh, had around uh, what they call Day of All Saints and, and uh, bringing together of those two for the celebrations of uh, November 1st and November 2nd. Following this, I inquired on exactly what is believed to occur during this period of time. Well, the notion is, the belief is that uh, during the celebration, the dead have an opportunity to come back to, to the world, to partake with the living, with their relatives, with their friends, but in order to do that, the living have to create a pathway. Once again, there's the mention of links. In accordance with the holiday's tradition, these come to be symbolized through various images and practices. Carrillo then further illuminates on the matter. Light and the light of uh, candles becomes very important. Food and drink become very important because it's a celebration. And then the pathway is created by the, the marigold or the, what in Spanish we call the flor de sempasuchitl to use a, a, a native uh, term, uh, which is this bright, you know, orange color that combined with the light of the candles creates uh, creates the notion of the pathway that allows the spirits of the dead to return and partake. No sé las flores, to help bridge the gap between academic understanding and lived experiences, I asked freshman Alexander Gonzalez Hernandez for his perspective. For me, my identity pretty much lies well within the Day of the Dead because I'm obviously Mexican. (laughs) 
And I grew up in a Mexican household and we always like celebrated Dia de Dead, whether it was in Denver or when I was living in Zacatecas. Because Hernandez Gonzalez is from Zacatecas, a city in Mexico, as well as Denver, Colorado, he is able to offer a unique perspective on the ways in which the celebration is embodied. In the 1970s, a purely Mexican tradition found its way to the United States, as Carrillo explains. At some point, you know, uh, the American Im imagination began to pay attention to, to, to the iconography of the Day of the Dead. Uh, uh, Mexican-American and Latin-American uh, immigrant communities in the U.S. began to organize events. Uh, you can think, for instance, going back 30 years about uh, a parade, a Day of the Dead parade that the Latino, Latinx, uh, Latino, Latina, you know, community organizes in San Francisco. That be began to bring, you know, the iconography. As this tradition saw an emergence in America, Halloween similarly found its footing in Mexico. There's also some parallels because in the iconography of Day of the Dead, there are a lot of skulls, skulls that are used. You know, people make candy skulls, etc. And of course, this coincides with Halloween, which also has a lot of skulls, etc. And so you begin to see this back and forth where Halloween made it into Mexico. Uh, in the 60s, in the 70s, you know, you began to see all of the, all of the, uh, pumpkins and uh, and uh, Halloween, you know, uh, icons. But uh, but here in the U.S., we also began to see the Day of the Dead. Outside of history and traditional meanings behind Dia de los Muertos, for both Hernandez Gonzalez and Carrillo, the holiday is essentially about memories, about nostalgia, and celebrating with loved ones. My family is kind of, in general, like busy all the time, and we're like not in touch as much as we used to be before. But with Day of the Dead, we just come together and we have good times, we celebrate, and yeah. I I set an ofrenda every year, and, and the ofrenda, you know, involves uh, the process of, of thinking about what foods, you know, your ancestors, uh, ancestors like and getting those, you know, uh, putting them on the, on, the, on, the, on the offering, having the flowers, and taking out the photos of your of your uh, of your deceased uh, relatives. Uh, what I like to do personally is that once the ofrenda is set, is to sit down with with my partner and talk about about the things that we remember. And then, of course, the 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 candles stay uh, on all night. And the next day, you know, the 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 the, the non-perishable foods that you put on the on the ofrenda can be eaten by the living. The the notion is that overnight, you know, because the dead came, that the, the foods have been infused by their by their essence, and then they become part of you. In essence, the day is simply a long remembrance. As it's come to exist today, Day of the Dead offers those who practice its customs a retrospective on living, as well as loving those who we once knew. For WNUR News, I'm Alex Huerta. Moving on to arts and entertainment. Have you been to the AMC Evanston recently? Probably not. The movie theater, which opened last school year, is often empty. Students just don't seem to care about going to watch a new release at the box office. John Ferrara has more. We come to this place for magic. 
We come to AMC theaters to to laugh, to cry, to care, yada, yada, yada. Have you heard that spiel anytime recently? Or do you even know what spiel I'm talking about? Odds are that Nicole Kidman's infamous AMC intro ad might be foreign to you. A 2023 survey from Statista found that 50% of people between ages 18 and 34 rarely or never go to the movie theater. Only 12% in that age group say they go often. I, for one, am in the small minority that love the movie theater. So much so that I'm a member of AMC A-List, a subscription service that entitles me to see three movies a week for $20 per month. A steal in my eyes, a waste of money in others. In a recent visit to the local Evanston AMC, I was greeted by a ghostland. Popcorn machines full of unshoveled kernels, a 100-seat theater filled by myself and one other spectator. I know, I know. COVID and streaming services probably expedited the downfall of movie theaters, but I wanted to know why Northwestern students specifically stay away from the box office. Usually show times and selections are fine, but pricing could be improved because I'm not made of money. Um, additionally, I feel like they could do better with advertising. I don't see MC anywhere anymore. That was Jane Olney, a Northwestern sophomore who strongly prefers streaming a film from her bedroom. Olney has only gone to theaters once in the last year, and it was far from a scintillating outing. I don't go to the movies more frequently because last time I went to Super Mario Bros, I had to leave halfway through because I got a stomach ache due to the large amount of candy that I consumed. Still, Olney thinks there's plenty to be done to improve the movie-going experience. I think the movie theater experience would be better if it was social because that's the one thing that it could have potentially over like watching a movie on a streaming service. Um, and also, it would be more fun that way because normally when you go to movies with friends, it's just silent. And the only times you can interact with them are before the movie and after the movie because you get shushed for speaking during the movie. But, like, movies you can, like, dress up for, like Barbie, that situation, that was fun. The Evanston AMC opened last school year, facing plenty of risk and an unencouraging history. In 2020, the Cinemark Theater, which leased the same location the AMC now occupies, closed its doors. It announced a permanent closure in 2021. So what did AMC see in the downtown Evanston market, primarily composed of college students, that Cinemark didn't? I asked Veronica Silvosa, an RTVF major at Northwestern and a former AMC Evanston employee, what she saw in her time working at the business. Like, it was just a, a little boring, I guess, because I actually didn't have too many customers, actually, because I usually worked on the weekdays, not on the weekends. And usually on the weekdays, Barely any people came, so there a lot of it was just kind of be sitting around waiting for someone to come up so I can check their ticket. Silvosa worked at the AMC for most of her freshman year, scanning tickets and serving candy. Like only, she thinks movie going would be better off if films were more social. Maybe having more things with people like you know like Barbie and Oppenheimer, like people dressing up to go, like making it more of an event rather than just let's go and watch a movie. It's like oh let's go and watch a movie and. Let's dress up and then maybe hang out before or after, like a little, yeah, just having, doing more than just watching a movie, making it more of a social event. It's no secret that the theaters appear to be on the way out. But for a minority of people, Silvosa and myself, for instance, heading to the movies is a sacred tradition and one worth saving. Silvosa told me she thinks the AMC is here to stay, even though it was often desolate during her shifts. As much as I love the optimism, I fear for the theater's long-term viability. It turning into another Cinemark seems like the most likely outcome. 
For WNUR News, I'm John Ferrara. And now, time for oddities. This fall, the Gender and Sexuality Resource Center is changing locations to Plex. But one thing has remained constant, the communal bookshelf. Paul O'Connor has the story. The Gender and Sexuality Resource Center, or the GSRC, is having a soft opening on campus this fall. Having just made the move from the third floor of the Norris Student Center last year, the GSRC is taking the fall to adjust to its larger, newly renovated space in House 5 of the Foster Walker Complex. We're no longer relegated to three converted closets in the Norris Center, and rather there's a deliberate space that has very intentionally been curated by queer folks for queer folks. That was Matthew Abtahi, the current director of the GSRC. They say that the new space has been designed to better accommodate Northwestern's LGBTQ plus population as it continues to grow. The original asked they wanted a queer community space that could fit approximately 30 people. That clearly was not achievable in the Norris space. It's a bit more achievable here. For queer students, we know that the number of trans and non-binary students are going to continue to grow. We know that the number of students that are identifying as LGBTQI plus are going to continue to grow. And so I think the university is pretty dedicated in making sure that there is a space that students can continue to grow and explore and understand their identity so that they can then also be full and engaged students across the Northwestern experience. Since its founding back in 2004, the GSRC has maintained a bookshelf. It's offered a wide variety of queer literature, including classic titles such as Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, or newer titles like How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. It's an artifact. It's our history. It's our history, our queer history. Like, you know, when you go to the community libraries, we've got some in our neighborhoods, and it's so cute to see what, what other people drop off, and it's kind of an interesting way to get to know other people. That was Johnny Cameron, a former graduate assistant for the space, back when it was called the LGBT Resource Center. They worked for the space back in its infancy, right as it was getting ready to open its doors for the very first time. There was finally a space where you could be among books like, well, the whole lesbian sex book. We had to buy that a couple of times that kept disappearing from the library. Although at times the space has used a checkout system, the bookshelf in the GSRC is communal. This means that anyone is open to explore the titles on the shelf and even borrow one. People are also encouraged to add to the case with selections of their own. We got some lovely donations from different community members, you know, some people who were staff and faculty. There were books on the shelves that were from people's personal uh, bookshelves that they just wanted to pass along. My understanding was it had been curated kind of just by the community. So the queer community at Northwestern many decades ago was really this kind of intergenerational faculty staff students when it was the gay liberation front. When looking through the titles on the shelf, there is indeed a sense of intergenerational dialogue, with titles spanning hundreds of years, some of the books being brand new and others in states of disrepair, it's clear this bookcase is accommodating several different eras of donors. Johnny talked about how this can be a way to empower voices that have been lost or silenced. We have a whole generation of you know gay 
male elders that, are, that do not exist anymore. And we had a whole generation of lesbians who washed their friends and cared for their friends as they died. I take a lot from those ancestors, from those people who were like, enough, we exist, we are human, our people are dying and you're not saying boo. However, this adds another task for staff maintaining this library, filtering out potentially outdated or even offensive material. There's just some stuff that's like dated literature, dated language that's in the space. Still useful to kind of contextualize our community's history, but also slightly irrelevant to someone who's maybe coming out or trying to understand their identity. And there's literature that is using words that nobody in community is using anymore. Many of the older, more obscure titles offer a significant look into the development of queer literature. Lake Prodder Violet, a story about a screenwriter back in mid 20th century London. Although there's little explicit discussion of LGBTQ themes within the novel, its author Christopher Isherwood was one of the few openly gay novelists of his time. But other titles are less useful. For instance, The Alexandra's Expedition by Patricia Sitkin. Although it centers a gay romance as the heart of the story, its use of colonial stereotypes and tropes takes away from its ability to be a window into historical queer literature. But a major initiative of the GSRC has been to actively add contemporary works of queer literature into the bookshelf. A lot of my work is staying in queer community, being in community with queer folks. As I knew and heard about titles, I would also just make a list and at the end of the year with whatever funds I have left over in my operational budget, I make sure to then update our reading list so that it's something a little bit more relevant. There are other communal bookshelves at Northwestern, notably in the Department of Creative Writing. These serve a similar purpose to keep students and faculty in community with literature. Those like, there's a, upstairs in the Hagstrom room is the sort of quote unquote English department library where you're welcome to go in and read and actually take books out, but you have to bring those back. Like you'll see faculty that were here in like the fifties, their stuff is still in there. And then we'll get books that are published this year in there. It's just kind of an archival space for the English department to keep its faculty books and sort of a history of English literature, world literature alive. That was Colin Pope, assistant director in creative writing in English. He says that communal bookshelves at Northwestern, as well as those scattered throughout Evanston and Chicago, can provide both a window into a community as well as a means to sustain it. Uh, one of those, those small community libraries present a snapshot of a neighborhood and demonstrate to anybody who passes by that there are readers in that area, which is, it's an affirmation that the life of books uh, goes on in a way that like a city library might not. And it's really interesting because I had just spoken with an alum this past homecoming. He was a student in the 70s here and he was telling me, he was like, it's really powerful to see a library like ours on campus where it's like not even regulated or policed at all. Because when he was on campus, there were two books that were coded under homosexuality that were locked away and that students had to specifically ask for and show credentials to then be taken to a space where these books were. And that was the 70s, like that was not that long ago. Even without those barriers, Johnny recalls similar anxieties when trying to access queer literature in their youth. I grew up in a small town in Texas, I'll say that, right? And I moved to Austin 
and there's this wonderful bookstore called Book People. It's independently owned. And so in the, the 90s, you know, I'm here and I'm doing the thing where I'm like, I feel like everyone's looking at me and, and I'm like, finding the game lesbian bookshelf because that's all it was then, right? Director Abtahi says that Northwestern has come a long way in terms of extending access to queer literature. For Northwestern to evolve to a place where now I'm out here just like letting anybody engage with any queer literature and I quite frankly don't even need to know what your name is, is a testament to how, much, how far we've gone and that the library is actively working with us to curate and build out fiction and nonfiction literature around LGBTQ and right now a specific target around trans and non-binary literature. And perhaps the GSRC's extension of books as communal objects is a step towards making sure there's a space for everyone to explore. To be you know, near those books in that kind of section, it was so taboo and it was so the key to opening you know, my own personal liberation journey. For WNUR News, I'm Paul O'Connor. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for the Sports Report. Gabriella Agosi has you covered. Hi, I'm Gabriella Agosi. Here's your NU Sports Report for this week. On Sunday, the Northwestern women's fencing team wrapped up a weekend-long competition in Orlando, Florida, where Sky Miller and Karina Vassell both placed in the top 30 at USA Fencing's October North American Cup event. Sky Miller had an exceptional showing as she finished with a record of 5-1 in pool action and was eventually ranked 26th in the tableau. She eventually finished the competition in 23rd place. Additionally, Karina Vassell, who was in the Division I women's foil, finished the competition placing 28th. Notably, during her time competing, Vassell defeated Michaela Chusid, who was the 9th seed. Overall, the Cats had an exceptional showing. Now look ahead to their next competition, at the Western Invitational in Colorado Springs this weekend. Yesterday, the men's golf team wrapped up competition at the Cal Poly Invitational with an exceptional showing, finishing as runners-up. Northwestern finished the competition tied with UCLA for second place, and California ended up with the team title victory. On the individual side of competition, both Daniel Zvard and Cameron Adam were both in a tie for sixth place overall. Additionally, Ethan Singh also ranked highly among the competition, earning himself a top 15 performance. Now, the men's golf team's fall season has officially ended and it looks forward to getting back into competition in late January in Tampa, Florida. Basketball season is officially underway tonight as the Cats will be taking on McKendry in an exhibition game. Last year, the Cats had a successful season and went to the NCAA basketball tournament for the second time in school history. Boo Booey will be returning for a fifth season and the Cats are eager to get back in action. Although the regular season doesn't officially start until next Monday, November 6th, and the Cats take on Binghamton, there's much excitement in looking forward to tonight's exhibition matchup. Additionally, this Friday, the men's soccer team will face Michigan in the Big Ten tournament for a spot in the semifinals. Northwestern recently faced Michigan this past Sunday and lost 3-0. Therefore, they are hoping for a better outcome this Friday in hopes of moving on in the tournament. That wraps up your NU Sports Report for this week. 
for more information about upcoming games, as well as how you can watch the Wildcats live, visit www.nusports.com. I'm Gabriella Egozi, WNUR News. A quick look at the weather for tonight. It is currently 38 degrees and cloudy. Temperatures will remain in the high 30s overnight. Tomorrow the sun will begin to show its head a little bit. Temperatures will go from the low 40s in the morning all the way up to 50 degrees in the afternoon. Taking a look into the headlines. The process of approving the new Ryan Field continues. After an eight-hour city council meeting, the proposals for the new stadium are now scheduled for a vote on November 13th. Mayor Daniel Biss broke a deadlock over the issue of concerts, which is one of the issues up for approval on November 13th. An Illinois state trooper was shot in Springfield yesterday by an alleged murder suspect. According to the authorities, the officer, Dakota Chapman Green, was shot at least 10 times. Chapman Green was taken to a nearby hospital where he began the recovery process. The shooter, who has been charged with five counts, including two counts of first-degree murder, is also in the hospital after being struck by a car. Chapman Green's family says he's eager to get back to work after he recovers. And finally, Britney Spears' memoir has already sold over a million copies. The book broke the million copy mark just a week after its release. According to Gallery, the audio version of the memoir, narrated by Michelle Williams, is the fastest-selling audiobook in the company's history. The sales numbers include audio editions, print editions, pre-orders, and e-books. Spears said in a statement that she was grateful to her fans and readers for their unwavering support. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter or X at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer today is Emily Stoll, and our reporters are Alex Huerta, Mariah Petway, John Ferrara, Gabriela Agosi, and Paul O'Connor. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Brendan Prizman. Catch our next newscast on Friday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.